Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Tracy Bond's Flying Circus. A celebration and look at 60 years of James Bond on film with a 21st century queer and feminist lens. I'm one half of your hosts, Sarah the Scrivener. And I'm the other half of both the podcasts and yours, Michaela Moody. Yay, and, and today... Yeah, What's about, what is it about today that's special? Today we are joined by Paige the Princess. I had to think about it for a second. I was like, "Wow, Princess Paige," but that's not entirely right. I obviously know your name. You're my it's best Princess friend. Princess Paige, you know, it's fine. Yeah, all right. Hi, Princess Paige. Paige. Hi. Paige the Princess, the other half of Princess and the Scrivener. Yeah. So, yeah. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited. Good. Haven't been on a podcast in a hot second, so this will be fun. We are, as usual, your host. My pronouns are she, her. I am Sarah's girlfriend. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm Michaela's girlfriend. And Paige's friend. <laughs> yep, and Paige's friend, too. And Paige, your pronouns? I'm also she, her. And Excellent. I'm just the best friend. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> and for the relevance of this podcast, it is worth noting that you are also openly bi. Yes. Uh, as am correct. I. Um, so we are all queer women here today. Mm-hmm. All queer women and only one third of this find Sean Connery attractive. Seriously, I, <laughs> I did not expect to be in the minority here, but <laughs> Paige, you were like, uh-uh, he's not, not into it. He's fine. <laughs> he's kind of basic. I wow. I have things I could say about this, like, I was, <laughs> and you know what? I will. When I was looking, I would argue at, that Chris Evans is also basic, listen, and you're obsessed with him. Listen, he's a good boy with a good dog. Anyway, <laughs> as y'all who are listening know, Sarah and I in a long distance relationship. Paige and Sarah have been best friends for like ten years, like eight. What is it? Well, we've been like best friends, I would say, for nine years, mm -hmm. but we met in 2012. Yeah. Yeah. And how long has Princess and Scrivener been a thing? So 2014? Those 2014. Yeah, it was October 2014. It was 2014. Oh, wow. Yeah. Eight years. Yeah. Wow. And one day, All right. one day you'll we'll come back from the abyss. You know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started. Today we watched Goldfinger, which came out in 1964. It is the third Eon Productions James Bond film. And this one is based off of a book. It's based on Ian Fleming's novel from 1959. Do we have significant content warnings for this episode that we want to... Uh, for the first time, we do actually see some fridged women in this. It's worth being aware of when you go into this. Mm -hmm. We have a death in the first 20 or 30 minutes or so that is somewhat, it's not brutal, it's not gory or anything, because it is still the 1960s and it's not that kind of film, but it's slightly disturbing. She is painted in gold paint and then... We are told that her that she suffocated, basically, which is not scientifically sound, but that doesn't matter. In the end, we have two fridged women. We do have what really does count as a sexual assault. Yeah, the film certainly doesn't think that it's sexual assault, but um, it is. Yeah. 
there's a scene essentially where James Bond forces himself on yeah. Pussy Girl. Yeah. He holds her down and like when they kiss for a few seconds, she like gets into it. But it's still like, really? It's sexual assault, but the film is certainly not taking that position, but we are. There are a few other things that are worth noting, at least just to set the scene. As for racism, there is a majority Asian henchman force for the main villain. But no yellow face this time. No yellow face. They are all Asian actors, which is one better than Doctor No. Still perpetuates the idea of Asian men as villains. Yeah, and only two of them have names, and only one of them speaks, right? Because doesn't yeah, because they say Oddjob is like disabled, yeah. he can't speak. Yeah, Oddjob doesn't speak at all. They use an archaic term for him being nonverbal, and Mister Ling, who is supposedly the representative of Communist China, is the representative of Communist China, and thus in this film painted as a villain. And he's barely in it. He's not really a character. Yeah. No. Here's the thing, like, I'm not a deep scholar of fat politics and history of fat hate, but something I find very interesting is, like, Goldthing, the main character, is a fat man. There isn't a great deal that I read as, like, fat phobia in this. Yeah, he really is, like, he's fat, but he's not a villain because he's fat, and he's yeah. not shown to be, like, greedy and, like, gorging himself, you know? No. Yeah, he's not gluttonous. There, there right, are no scenes exactly. of him eating or anything. Right. It's just that the actor looks like that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like one moment where Jill Masterson says something along the lines of like, and I'm paid to be seen with him, and Bond says, just seen with him. And she says, just seen with him. And Bond's like, thank goodness. And I was worried that was going to take a turn, but I, however that resolved, didn't end up feeling fat phobic. No, it, it comes off more as like, well, thank God. He doesn't pay you to have sex with him. Yeah. Now I can have sex with you right. without paying you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, we got like kind of implied ableism with our job being described as he's described as mute, which is again an archaic term for being nonverbal. Yeah. And I think that about does us yeah. for, for trigger and content warnings. I think that's pretty much it. After Terrence Young did a couple of films in the director's seat, this is the first time that Guy Hamilton's directing. Something that I think is worth thinking about is that I do think that Guy Hamilton, and this is a low bar, this is Bond, but especially compared to Terence Young, I do think that Guy Hamilton at least proves to be like somewhat genuinely interested at all in the existences and interior lives of women in a way that like Terence Young wasn't in any way, apart from Sylvia Trench. I don't know what you think, Sarah. I think that's a really good way to describe it, because there's definitely more female characters in this one. Yeah. There's there's more female characters with names and lines than there ever has been in a Bond film up to this point. And despite the treatment of them, which we will definitely get into, we do learn about who they are and we learn, you know, some motivations and stuff. Like, they are actually players in the story. I think that's the thing. They have motivations and desires that link to their actions and fates 
whether or not those are good things in the end. Yeah. And it's just, it feels different than like Dr. No, because yeah. you can make the argument that the women in the last two had the same thing, but like, yeah. it feels more fleshed out here, which again, like you said, I think yeah. it's a little bit of a low bar, but it's definitely different. Guy Hamilton had actually turned down the opportunity to direct Dr. No, but like now he's here and he directs Goldfinger wanting to shake things up a bit, worried that Bond was becoming Superman, which is funny because I don't think he's got to that stage yet with the first couple of films. We're only two in. <laughs> and he felt the need to work hard on the villains to balance Bond out a bit. Yeah, I would agree with that. Definitely a more developed villain. We have Sean Connery, of course. We have Honor Blackman as the Bond girl, Pasigalore. And then we have Gert Frobe, which is German, and I do not know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he's the one playing Auric Goldfinger, the villain. Yeah. Also, he's not top build, but I'm including Harold Sakata because he's wonderful as Odd Job, Goldfinger's right hand man. Um, he's also extremely good looking, so I just wanted to put him in the top billing on looks alone. So that is. Uh, we also have returning Bernard Lee as M, Lois Maxwell as Miss Moneypenny, Desmond Llewellyn as Q. And we have a returning character in Felix Leiter. Played by a completely different guy. Here we have a guy called Sec Linda. Either Sec or Cease. I mean, something I think worth noting about Goldfinger as a film is that it's really going to set the tone here on out for, like, what these films are. Like, I would argue that Goldfinger is, like, the quintessential Bond film. Yeah. It has all the things that you would expect to find. This movie did so well. It made a lot of money, and people really, really liked it. And as such, I think that when you think of a Bond film and the kind of the cliches that we think of when it comes to James Bond, like the laser going up the middle to saw him in half, that's from this film. We have Bond girls, we have quirky villains, we have a dastardly plot that has to be stopped. It's all coming together. And all pretty well paced. Yeah. And it's really well paced. Now that being said, we actually forgot to do something, which we can do now, and it's fine. Um, Paige, what is your history, if any, with Bond? With Bond? Um, I mean, as most people are, I'm aware of Bond. I've been aware of Bond. For anybody that doesn't know, I went to film school, and we didn't really watch Bond films, but they were always part of the conversation. My film business teacher was a big Bond guy, and I, so we had the Octopussy poster hmm. on the wall in the classroom. Wow! Yeah. What a choice for your high school film teacher. Right, exactly. Um, he was my film business teacher. Um, <laughs> okay. To be specific. This is the first actual Bond film that I've ever seen. I don't recall ever watching a Bond film in any of my film classes. And I've seen, you know, like the Austin Powers movies that are parodies of Bond. And yeah. I've seen The Incredibles. I've seen The Spy Who Dumped Me. Those are all kind of the closest that I've ever really gotten to Bond himself. Yeah. <laughs> so... They are definitely loving homages. Right. When we were watching it last night, I said that, like, The Incredibles pulls a lot of inspiration from this. You can really see that. Oh, it's yeah. just, The Incredibles is like James Bond. If he actually was Superman, you know? Yeah, if he was a superhero. Yeah. Sarah, would you be willing to give us a brief synopsis of the story and how the characters fit into it? 
We have a cold open with Bond in South America taking down a drug lab. Uh, it's unrelated to the rest of the story, as the cold opens sometimes are. We get the opening titles, which is the first time that we actually have the full song with lyrics playing over the title sequence, and it's great. I love it, but we'll talk about that later. James Bond is vacationing in Miami Beach until he meets up with Felix Leiter, who we last saw in Dr. No. He's an agent for the CIA, and he and Bond are going to be working together to take down our villain, Auric Goldfinger, which basically means gold gold. He is a gold dealer, and he's just generally very, very into it. It's his personality. Uh, Bond catches Goldfinger cheating at a card game. And he's being assisted in cheating by his employee, Jill Masterson. Bond interferes, causes Goldfinger to lose the game, and threatens to turn him into the Miami police. And then Bond and Jill, after doing some flirting, uh, they decide to sleep together. Goldfinger obviously gets really mad, and in retaliation, he murders Jill by covering her in gold paint. Uh, the idea being that she suffocates, which would not happen. Bond gets back to London to meet with MI6, and M tells him that they basically think that Goldfinger is smuggling gold internationally, so they need Bond to figure out how he's doing that and to stop him from doing it. We get to see the inside of Q headquarters for the first time. Bond gets his iconic Aston Martin, along with a few other gadgets from Q. Goldfinger and Bond play a game of golf in Kent, and we meet his main henchman, Oddjob, who is great, but... It's not really important for the story. He then follows him to Geneva, Switzerland, and we meet Tilly Masterson, who is Jill's sister, and she's determined to kill Goldfinger to avenge her sister. She and Bond team up for about 10 minutes before Tilly is killed by Oddjob. While they're trying to escape, Bond is kidnapped and brought to Louisville, Kentucky, where Goldfinger has a horse ranch, because he's rich and he likes horses. We meet Pussy Galore, another Goldfinger henchman, and Bond Girl, and we learn about the mysterious Operation Grand Slam, which is Goldfinger's plan to break into Fort Knox and turn all of the US's supply of gold radioactive. The idea being that it would increase Goldfinger's value of his own gold. So yeah, not just smuggling, he's, he's gonna break into Fort Knox. And that would be bad for the US's economy, so we gotta stop him. We then get to see Operation Grand Slam. It's a really great, fantastic battle with the US military at Fort Knox. There is a bomb that Bond has to defuse inside the vault that would cause everything to go radioactive, and he defuses it while he's fighting Oddjob, and he stops it just in time. Goldfinger escapes, but he and Bond have one last fight in an airplane that is being piloted by Pussy Galore. Bond kills Goldfinger on the plane, and then the film ends with Bond and Pussy Galore making out. In a parachute, not in a boat. And actually, Bond doesn't kill Goldfinger. Goldfinger gets sucked out of the plane into outer space. Yes, they shoot out a window, <laughs> out and then space. he gets sucked out through the window. Oh and it's very funny. Uh, and I, th I do at least think partially to their credit, they intended it to be funny. And we say outer space because this possibility of being sucked out of an airplane window is brought up earlier in the film by Bond, and he literally says, If you fight at this close range, the bullet will pass through me and the fuselage like a blowtorch through butter. The cabin will depressurize and we'll both be sucked into outer space together. And Paige was very adamant about the fact that it would not be outer space. No, it, the, yeah. the atmosphere is there. Yeah. <laughs> one, one human body can't just rocket through the atmosphere like that. No. But you know what? It it's just one of those little things. <laughs> Is this a travelogue or an action movie? I mean, 
It's a travelogue. Yeah. Despite the prevalence of green screen in the Miami section, it is very much like, wow, Miami is really cool. Mm-hmm. Wow, Kentucky is really pretty. When it's <laughs> horses. Yeah. Yeah. In the scenes we have in Switzerland, like, we have these beautiful scenes of, like, them driving along hills, and it's just gorgeous. The Alps. Gorgeous. The Swiss Alps. Oh, beautiful. So, yeah. travelogue. Absolutely. Okay, I, I mean, I, I like that we start with women, and I think it's always kind of an important benchmark of figuring out, like, how did this film do? Because, like I said earlier, I think that this film does do a better job with giving women lives and motivations and, like, actual existences, but it also kills two of the three. Yeah, so in the first episode, we kind of talked about how me as a novice had this impression of Bond that, like, there's just tons and tons of dead women, like, left in James Bond's wake. And this is really where we start to see that trend, which I would still argue it doesn't happen in every single film. It doesn't happen nearly as often as you kind of think that it will. But we do have two women who I would say are fridged. Like, this is the definition. Jill Masterson is murdered because Goldfinger is trying to punish her for her actions of betraying him as an employee, but also Bond. Like, we see the effect that it has on Bond. He's more motivated to take down Goldfinger as a result. That's fridging. And also, her death motivates her sister, who in turn gets fridged to motivate Bond further. Yeah, Tilly is, like, more frustrating to me, because we meet her, and she's really cool. We spend a little bit longer than ten minutes with her on screen, but, like, we don't know who she is for about half of that. And then when we finally figure out who she is, she's literally with Bond in the car for about five minutes before she just dies. Oddjob just kills her with his hat, and just... Like, to me, that's very frustrating because it almost feels like she serves no point in the story. Like, to me, it's something that if I'd seen the script, I would have been like, um, okay, so we barely had time to get attached to her. Why is she here? Paige, did you have any prior conceptions of, like, women in Bond and how did this match up? Um, I think mostly I've just been aware of, like, the title Bond Girl. Yeah. Even if I didn't entirely know, like, what a Bond, like, what made a Bond girl, a Bond girl. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. And that's, that's a really tricky question, too. That's really interesting, though. I, I don't know if I ever had any conception of, like, oh, women die at the hands of, you know, Bond villains because mm. of Bond. Sure. No, that's fair. Yeah. I'm going to jump off of that. Because when you said aware of the term Bond girl, but not really knowing what it meant or what it entails, I actually felt the same way. And there's a part of me that kind of still feels that way because it's Bond girl is a nebulous term and it's kind of difficult to actually define what that means. Because I think what people generally mean is Bond girls who survive their films. But like, so we think of like Honey Rider and Pussy Galore and... The thing about Bond girls is you either count all of them or you only count the survivors. Yeah. My preference is to count all of them because they are all entangled with Bond, which I think is the only criteria. Yeah. So it's tricky because like, Pussy Galore is a Bond girl, and like, 
by that parameter, so is Moneypenny. Yeah. Even though Moneypenny has a very different role in these films than like somebody who, you know, is like Pussy Galore in this film. Yeah. Where she's like a henchwoman, but then in the end she kind of switches sides. Yeah. Because she decides that killing 60,000 people maybe isn't like super cool. Yeah. So she <laughs> decides not to do that. Do we like Pussy Galore? Do we like on a black nose Pussy Galore? Yes. Yeah. What's not to like? Yeah, no, that was a prompt question rather than an actual question. You know, right. we're all gay here. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. Yes, we like it when after Jill, you know, Jill just kind of like, oh, he's hot. I'm gonna flirt with him. I'm gonna sleep with him. Yeah, Pussy is like, no, I don't want anything to do with his bullshit. None of that. Stay away from me. Yeah, like she shuts it down and she walks away and she's like, I'm a pilot and that's all that matters to me. Yeah. Pussy Galore is a very cool character. She is Goldfinger's personal pilot, so she's on his payroll. I would say in ranking, she and Oddjob are equal, yeah. which is fun. We learn a bit more about her. Something we didn't mention in the summary because I knew we'd talk about it later is that Pussy Galore as a pilot has this all-female pilot brigade that she runs called Pussy Galore's Flying Circus. Hence our name, as we've explained in the first episode. So that's where we get the name of this podcast from. It's in reference to her, especially because the film is very, very coy about this, I imagine, because it's the 1960s. Whether or not the audience would have picked up on that implication at the time who knows but there's a part where she says that she's immune to bond's charms this should be a memorable flight you can turn off the charm i'm immune so the implication is certainly that it's because she's not interested in men so implying she's a lesbian yeah that is more heavily implied in fleming's book yes that is probably because of the Hayes code because this was absolutely made after the Hayes code yeah, yeah. And, like, they, there's some interesting trivia about, like, the production history as it pertains to being able to be released in America. Like, American censors were very not on board with Pussy Galore's name. They basically said, we're not going to release this unless you uh, only refer to her as Miss Galore on the posters and stuff. That actually reminds me of a fun fact. Honor Blackman, who plays Pussy Galore in this movie, had a lot of fun when she was being interviewed for press for this movie, saying her character's name, Pussy Galore, as often as possible, because it made the interviewers very, very uncomfortable in all of the ones that she did, which I just think is such a fun power move. Something that I found in one of the books that I've been reading when Harry McCubby is that one of the ways they were able to finally get the American censor to agree to just deal with it was that probably a UK newspaper had published a story of Honor Blackman meeting Prince Philip, and the headline read, Pussy Meets the Prince. Oh my god. So the producers went to the censor, to the American censor, being like, well, it's respectable. Like, you know, she met Prince Philip. It's fine. And they were like, fine. Apparently. But yeah, That's very I, interesting. I love Anna Blackman's performance as Pussy Galore. She's very assured. It is a nice contrast with Jill. Yeah, there's definitely a distinction between Pussy Galore and Jill Masterson. Pussy Galore, I think, is like... I think you can go either way with the performance where you might think that her and Goldfinger are friends, but she kind of keeps him at arm's length. But definitely higher ranking in the organization and definitely 
somewhat believes in what Goldfinger's doing. Something that is worth saying is that like there isn't a tri- there isn't like a whole load of yucky leering from Goldfinger over her. No, which is nice and like. The film would be a lot worse if that were the case. Mm-hmm. Putting aside the simple fact that Bond forces himself upon her, how do we feel about them being an item from that point on, at least in the film, in the context of the film? Paige, why don't you start us off? I mean, the kiss is icky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that first kiss Oh, you like... mean the part where he's holding her down? Yeah. 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 Not the sexiest thing imaginable. No. They're like tete a tete is fun. Yeah. Yeah. And then like knocking each other into the hay and then not even, you know, making the joke about rolling in the hay. Like that. That's fun. The judo furs are very fun. Yeah. 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 They have good chemistry, but I don't know. Like, I don't know if I, you know, want them to be together kind of thing. If yeah. That's no. where we're, if that's the conversation we're having. I think, having. I mean, I think that's the thing. I think I do agree. They do have good chemistry. Like, they are a good match for each other. But I, but like, if this were being made today, certainly wouldn't want it to be as a result of an assault. And I think it would also be like, still be electric and magnetic if they were just working together. Yeah. Yeah. He has that with Moneypenny. Yeah. He and Moneypenny flirt openly, and M is like, can you please stop flirting in my office? Yeah. But they're they're not an item, and neither- Right in front of my salad. Exactly. Neither of them are pretending that they're an item in any way. I think that's the biggest thing, is that, like, Bond doesn't really fall in love or date women. He just- He has flings. And he cares about them. I would argue that Bond does care about the women that he sleeps with. Yeah. Like, at least Sean Connery's Bond. But it does become very tricky because, like, you know, how are we supposed to interpret it as the audience? But, like, this is where we start to get into what would the 1960s audience have thought of this and what would they have taken from the ending versus, like, what do we take? Sure. Which is that it's totally fine that they're not dating and they aren't dating. Well, you know, this is a great way to transition into the next thing, which is sex. Yeah, there's there's a couple bits of sex in this movie. I, I will say that because Tilly Masterson is in the film for about five minutes before she's murdered, they do not sleep together. <laughs> but they would have! They would have if she'd been in here for longer than 10. They would have, but it is the only upshot of her not being in the film for very long and is, is the, it is kind of fun to see Bond have an entirely platonic, slightly flirty relationship, but mostly one-sided and, like, she doesn't seem very interested for most of it. Yeah. She's very single-minded and I think it's kind of fun to have a character who, is, who spends her entire time rebuffing Bond. Mm-hmm. But as for the sex that is there, like, I mean, Sarah, you're the one who thinks about sex most. What do you think? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Question mark. Um, so Jill Masterson and Bond, after some, like, it's solid flirting. Mm. They got good chemistry. They have sex in Goldfinger's hotel room, which, I mean, it's where they're hanging out anyways. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. where he finds her. They don't, like, they don't meet at the <laughs> pool and then run up to Goldfinger's room to fuck. But, like... There were a series of bad decisions made, okay? Like, first, you know, Jill doesn't try to hide that she's flirting with this guy that, like, just ruined her boss's, like, game and caused him to lose, like, I don't know, it was, like, $10,000 at least. $15,000. $15,000. And she's just like, okay, I'm gonna sleep with this guy. And I'm like, girl, <laughs> think about this just a little bit longer. 
but they they have sex and then when bond gets knocked out and he comes to and that's when we discover that she's dead it's like i don't think from a 21st century viewpoint that we're meant to see that that we have to read the film as like she had sex and therefore she died like it's clear that she died because she betrayed Goldfinger and kind of just fucked him over and didn't really think about it. Yeah. And like, that was the mistake, not sleeping with Bond. No, it's not a, it's not a horror movie thing. Right. No, it's, it's not a morality thing. Or at least if that's what these films were trying subconsciously to show us, I don't think they were blunt enough to survive 60 years later. Like, that attitude. No, I don't think it's that deep. I think it is much more women are disposable in the cases where they are. I agree with that. And in terms of Pussy Galore and James Bond, we don't know for certain if they had sex, like, before the end of the film. I think we, it's implied that they do as the credits are rolling, which is what always happens at the end of a Bond film. They probably did. But of course, like Paige was saying, it begins with this like little fight where he's trying to come on to her and he's trying to convince her like, you should not be murdering all these people for this like Operation Grand Slam. And she's like, I'm going to do what I want. You can't tell me what to do. And then they like wrestle and then it ends with him on top of her. And then he holds her down as she's fighting back and then he kisses her. And after, like, a few seconds, she's like, oh, yeah, I want to do this. And I'm like, do you, though? Are you sure? And I, I think the film is probably trying to tell us. And then he turned her, and she's not a lesbian anymore. But we're watching as queer women, like, and it turns out she's bisexual. <laughs> but, like, maybe likes one man. Yeah. And all the rest are women. <laughs> Skews towards women. Which is, I think, totally valid. And Pussy Girl, here's my one boyfriend and my flying school girlfriend's. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, the important thing is not any implication that maybe her sex, like her sexuality is so quiet in this that it's almost even hard to argue that like he turns her, quote unquote, because like, yeah. if you miss that one bit, you might not even know that she's supposed to be queer. I do think that a code in here that may, obviously not as strong as it would have been 10 or 20 years earlier, but like, she never wears a skirt. She is always in very smart, like, trouser mm-hmm outfits and i think coupling that with i'm immune i'm immune to your charms might have given a stronger message than it would do now Mm -hmm. fair point so sex in this film is interesting it is abundant and it's certainly more interesting than it is i think in the previous two yeah at what point when we were watching did i just say bond is horny Uh, very (laughs) early on i think he was flirting with jill like (laughs) he yeah that was the second woman that he'd already, like, had relations with. And that was, like, 15 minutes into the film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Bond is very horny, and he's very promiscuous. Mm-hmm. I'm avoiding the word slutty because of the negative connotation, but I also say it just as, like, a neutral thing. Bond is a slut. He's very concerned about sex, and he loves to have it. If you are a person who uses slut in the neutral context, and we certainly are, then Bond is a slut. Mm-hmm. How sexist is this film? In terms of, you know, films from the 1960s featuring women. Yeah. It's aimed at adults. Yeah. I think it's fine. In terms of, like, films overall, could be better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's better than From Russia With Love, which Mm -hmm. I just thought was, like, like, we couldn't go 10 minutes in From Russia With Love without them making some kind of, like, sexist offhand remark. 
or yeah. something needlessly sexist happening. Like you said, the women actually exist in this movie like as characters, and even if sometimes they are short-lived, we do understand them as people, regardless of how disposable they are. They do exist yeah. in the story, and that doesn't mean that we're completely absent, though, of like casually sexist things like from the 1960s. And it's like... It's like little small sexist microaggressions throughout, like... Bond introducing his masseuse to Felix Leiter and being like, say hello, Dink. Yeah. Say goodbye, Dink. Yeah. And then slapping her on the butt. Yeah. yeah. Like, stuff like that happens, like, very frequently in From Russia With Love, and I was not super into that when we watched it recently. There's broadly less of that kind of rubbish. Yes. There certainly is still, like, the talking down to women and, like, women being objects, but it's balanced somewhat by the fact that we have so many female characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I bet Jill Masterson likes the Beatles. Oh my god. So is that a way, uh, can we talk about jokes? There are some good jokes in this one. Yeah. We have some decent puns. I think the, the pun game has really stepped up here. I mean, I was just referring to a moment where Bond post-coitus gets up and compares drinking a certain vintage of, I think it was champagne. Something just aren't done such as drinking Dom Perignon 53 above a temperature of 38 degrees Fahrenheit. That's as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. Basically just like flat out is like the Beatles are trash and <laughs> you can't even fight me on it because it's true. Like it was, <laughs> it's a little jarring because it's certainly a reminder that it's like, oh, this is 1964. Like the Beatles are very much like very popular right now at this time. But it was, it was hilarious. Yeah. Let's see, we had some decent puns. Yeah. One of which made Paige very angry. Remind the shocking me. one. Right in the oh, first five minutes. No, I wasn't I wasn't angry. <laughs> I was quoting Do Revenge when she's like, shocking, it's shocking. I'm shocked. Ah uh, right. right. Bond electrocutes a guy who's trying to kill him in a bathtub with a toaster <laughs> or some sort of electronic device, and then his response is shocking. And that's what Camilla Mendez Positively shocking. Doesn't do revenge when they try to expose max at school and everybody's like oh my god and she's just sitting there like i'm shocked it's shocking i'm shocked yes. i do think that is the first truly classic bond pun mm -hmm. also my favorite is it's it's very silly and it's very crass but when he wakes up in the plane after being kidnapped and Pussy Galore is pointing the gun at him and he's like, who are you? And she's like, my name is Pussy Galore. And he's like, I must be dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a dirty joke, but yeah. it's, it's, it's simple and effective and I like it. Listen, I mean, I think for a little bit of context, when I was watching this 20 years ago and I was 11, I didn't really know what pussy meant. I knew it was rude, but I didn't get all the jokes. I didn't know why it was so rude. So a lot of these went way over my head for a while. Fair. It reminds me of that segment on Graham Norton where he had Daniel Craig and Judy Dench and Javier Bardem on mm. for the Skyfall release. And he plays a game with Dave Judy Dench sitting right there right. where he's like, so your Bond name is the nickname that you had for your genitals when you were a child and then your grandmother's maiden name. And I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> It's very funny. We'll link it in the show notes. It was very funny. Yeah. Some fun jokes. We liked them. Yeah. Some fun allies here. I like Felix Leiter here better than I do in Dr. No. He is also a little older. He has more of a personality. 
I think. He does. He's still barely in it. <laughs> yeah. And he's, I mean, I don't know if I blame him, but like, he's a little bit bad at his job because he follows Bond with the tracker until he loses him and then they go to the stub farm and he's like, yeah, Bond's fine. We'll just leave. Oh, look at him talking to a lady. He's fine. Thanks a lot, Felix. I'm, I'm glad you've got my back. I mean, things ultimately work out. Yeah, he learns what's happening. He figures it out. But yeah, there's not really much for Felix Leiter to do. And Ever. so far, we've only seen him in two films. But he doesn't... He's there. This isn't going to change until, like, Live and Let Die. Yeah. And then not even that much until really Licensed to Kill, which is... Isn't Felix the one that diffuses the bomb? Was it Felix? Or was it some guy, some random guy in glasses? Well, it's not Bond. Bond is like, uh He doesn't? No. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He just like this. He just, like, touches everything. <laughs> He's like, I don't know what's happening! I thought he did it right at the last second! No, Somebody but else. yeah, the joke is, like, he's fussing about, and then some guy just saunters up, sticks his hand in the right place, and turns it off. Huh. Totally misinterpreted that. Apparently I looked down for two seconds oh. and just assumed that he'd done it. I think I remember you doing so at the time. <laughs> Oops. What do we think of the villains? Start with Auric Goldfinger. We're not going straight into our job. Good stuff. It's good stuff in this one. Because we have Goldfinger, we have Oddjob, who is probably one of the most iconic James Bond henchmen, and we have Pussy Galore. Mm. And they're all very fun. Mr. Lang, I think is his name. He's he's a representative in China who's collaborating with Goldfinger, helping him pull this Fort Knox thing off. But he's not really a player, which is why we haven't really talked about him at all easily able to skip over that part of the film yeah. just because it's not particularly compelling but like goldfinger is great Gert Ferb, who was a german actor yeah the <gasps> he's in chitty chitty bang bang yeah he's baron bombast oh my god no wonder i've i had been thinking that he looked familiar and i just thought there's some other reason oh my god do you remember who wrote chitty chitty bang bang originally uh it's not dick van dyke um no dick van dyke's in chitty chitty bang bang he didn't uh, yes i'm aware of that i was joking is it rolled doll no look it up i'm looking i'm trying why don't you just tell me ian fleming wrote chitty chitty bang oh my god no yeah (laughs) crap okay well, Roald Dahl co-wrote the screenplay. Okay. Also, I knew so Roald Dahl wasn't right when yeah. I said it. I just thought, like, ugh. Some of you all may recognize Gert Ferb from being later on in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah. He's the main villain. That's hilarious. Yeah. Now, he, Gert Ferb is almost entirely dubbed in this film, much like a lot of other actors so far in these early films. But the story I read in one of the books I've been reading is that the producers were told that he spoke English. When he arrived, the only thing he can he could fluently say was "Hello, very good to meet you" or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm reading it now. He spoke very little English. When he said his lines phonetically, he was too slow. So the only time his real voice is heard is during his meeting with the mafia. Mm. And so when he's talking and Bond is like below the model, apparently that's Frobe's voice that we can hear. But he was he was dubbed for the rest of the movie by Michael Collins. I wonder if the reason for that was it was just at the time much harder to reproduce the sound of the hall he was in and like the distance from where Bond was. 
in dubbing with mm-hmm. effects. Now you could do that digitally, but back then it was probably just easier to use the source audio. I, I mean, I think Michael Collins matches Gert Frobe's lip movements exceptionally well. Oh yeah. I mean, I'll say that I'll say the same about the women dubbing Tanya in From Russia with Love and Honey Rider in the first film. The dubbing isn't bad. It kind of sucks that it exists, but it isn't poorly done. Mm-hmm. And Gert Frobe puts on a fantastic performance physically. He really does, and he's charismatic in this odd way, in a completely different way than Bond is. I think like how we talked about Peter Lorre being Le Shiv in the climax production of Casino Royale, yeah. he's compelling to watch. He very much believes in what he's doing. His plan, when you break it down and you just describe it to someone else, it like it sounds ridiculous, but it's actually not a terrible idea. And when he explains it, like it, sa- it sounds logical. Yeah. Like, and that's a very powerful performance. I think he's great. He's a great villain. He has great chemistry with Sean Connery. And he's fun. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Any more to say about... (laughs) Any more to say about Goldfinger before we let Sarah loose on our job? He had a very good, um, like, syndrome energy for me. Yeah. A little unhinged, mm-hmm. very, very annoyed by Bond yes. thwarting But like, him. also expertly keeping his temper mm-hmm. lidded. Like, he never, I don't think Goldfinger really loses his temper at all, apart from when he's panicking at the very end. And that's, like, that's worth, that's really fun to watch. Yeah. Paige, that's very astute, because I, I would say that if, in thinking about all the Bond villains that I can think of, like, it seems that Syndrome and Goldfinger are the closest, even though there's there's some deviation, but it seems like they probably really based some of the dynamic off of Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. But also, at the same time, I think Syndrome wishes that he was Goldfinger. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Sarah... Okay, let's talk about Oddjob. So Oddjob is Goldfinger's henchman. He is introduced as his Korean manservant, which it's worth noting that uh, Oddjob is played by Harold Sakata, who was an American, not only Olympic weightlifter, but also a professional wrestler. He was born in Hawaii, and he was born to Japanese parents. And yeah, he won a silver medal in the 1948 Summer Olympics for weightlifting. His name is also not Harold. Yeah, Harold is like the name that he picked as an actor. Yeah, his name is Toshiyuki. Or was, he's not alive anymore, unfortunately. His popular professional wrestling name was Tosh Togo. Hmm. He had never acted before besides pro wrestling. Yeah, it was his first screen appearance, which... But that's why he doesn't talk. Like, wow. It doesn't really say that, like, he was nervous to act. It just says he had never acted before besides pro wrestling, but the film character would require little theatrical skill. Okay. Which, to me, implies that, like, he agreed to do it because it didn't require him to learn an entire new set of skills. Yeah. Like memorize lines or anything. Yeah. He also appeared as Odd Job in a series of TV commercials for Vicks cough syrup. Wow. That's kind of awesome. So, very cool. This is his first on screen appearance, and it really launched his career, which I think is very cool. His whole gimmick is that he has a bowler hat that he wears the entire time. He's in a suit the entire time, which is uh, worth noting. 
It's not only a suit. It's, it's a, a great suit. It's a three-piece suit with a waistcoat mm-hmm. and everything. And and he's got a bowler hat. And his thing is that he throws the bowler hat and it has some sort of metal on the inside. It's some sort of gadget because like he throws it at a statue and it cuts the head off of the marble statue that he throws it at. Now, a little bit of history for me... A lot of my introduction to James Bond, like specific details, came from Mythbusters specials. So this was one of the things that they tested. So I know for a fact that this is not possible, <laughs> which makes sense. But nobody cares about plausibility yeah, in a Bond film. I was gonna say that like it was hard for me to tell if I was supposed to have an extra layer of disbelief and believe that he just threw it so hard that it cut the head of the statue off or if the hat itself was the weapon. Yeah. So like, is like, I still am in my head. Like, is he just that strong or is it the hat? I think they imply that it's both because after he demonstrates that on the statue, he has this extremely hot moment where he takes a golf ball and he just crushes it into dust with his hand. Yeah. (laughs) So hot. (laughs) my interpretation is that it is both his throwing strength and velocity and the fact that the hat is not necessarily sharp but that it is a very solid bit of metal Mm -hmm. that can like crack a weak point on on the neck of the statue or kill someone if you throw it at their back as happens to Tilly later on. Yeah, that's how Tilly dies, as he throws the hat at her, but it doesn't decapitate her. She just seems that it just, it's like hitting someone in the back of the head with a heavy object. Like, yeah. sometimes it's enough. But yeah, he's really great. Oddjob does not speak, except for like a few just like kind of sound effects. And he gives a really interesting performance. I think you can argue like in talking about disability because it's kind of unclear whether or not we're supposed to think that's because he's like mentally disabled or if it's because of something else. Maybe he just doesn't like talking. Or if it's because of a language barrier in the universe or whatever. Or maybe it's because he's Korean. Like there's a few different options. I'm a little bit more inclined to say that I think the film wants to sort of hint that he's developmentally, that he's mentally disabled. Yeah. But I do not think that Harold Sakata's performance really lends to that because Harold Sakata's performance as Oddjob is like it's very compelling to watch and it's clear that he understands what's going on and that he thinks for himself but I think it's kind of like you know women in Bond films in general you can easily watch it and have the argument made for you if this is what you believe that like that he's intellectually disabled and like that's why he does these things but I don't interpret it that way probably because I just don't have those kinds of views about disability so I see him and I think he's smart he's capable he's his own guy um, and he just wants to do what Goldfinger says and I think Harold Sakata gives a really interesting performance and as I've already said several times I think Harold Sakata is very attractive so I have a really great time in this film because I think Odd Job is just really hot and combined with Pussy Galore also being really hot I'm just being attacked on all fronts <laughs> so yeah He's great. The woes of being bisexual. Yes, truly. It'll take us a while to get to the character of Jaws, who you also have a crush on, but like... Ah, Jaws. Heart eyes. I I would like to request that I I have a very specific statement to make about Pussy Galore when we get into her for the villain section. I figure she's next. Yeah, let's go into Pussy Galore as villain. One of my favorite things that I said last night was that Pussy Galore is the original 
I support women's rights, but I also support women's wrongs. Yeah. <laughs> and you were right about that. She she is doing some wrongs, but she also I think because she has lines where odd job does not, it's much more clear with her that she knows what she's what she's getting into and that she wants to do it because she's making her own economic decisions. Right. Yeah. Now those economic decisions involve uh, smuggling gold, which is, you know, eh, whatever on the morality scale. Yeah. Illegal. Yeah. Not not good, but, you know, not murdering 60,000 people. Yeah. But, like, part of Goldfinger's plan to break into Fort Knox is literally to kill every single person residing at Fort Knox, which is about 60,000 people. And Pussy Galore is the one who's going to do it. Every single person at Fort Knox plus, like, within a five-mile radius, the town, right, the yeah. town around. Including Their plan yeah. is to spray some, some toxic gas yeah. over, and her pilots are going to do it. So that's the role she plays in this plan. Obviously, she doesn't do that. She does not. She does not do I that. think, to the question, she is a compelling villain when she is a villain. And she ends up in a nice sort of grey anti-hero space. Mm-hmm. By the end of the film, definitely. Yeah. I definitely don't get the impression that she wants to go join the CIA. No, 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 no. I think I've just developed the headcanon that, like, she has a radio and she stays behind and she's like, you piss off. Yeah. I'm going to call the, the circus and they're going to take me away and we're going to go to the Caribbean island I was talking about and like probably deal drugs or something. Yeah. She doesn't spark me as the kind of woman that is looking to be tied to any like one person. No. At the, mm-hmm. at the moment, especially. Like, yeah. She's got a job. She likes doing her job. She wants to keep doing it, and that is priority number one for her. Yeah. Yeah, it really is the first time, I think, that we get the nice trope of Bond girl and Bond as equals. Yeah, I agree with that. Especially because, like, when I think more about the Roger Moore era, which we won't get into until next year, but for the ways that female characters have more things to do and, like, bigger identities in the Roger Moore films, there are a lot of Bond girls in those films that are very, like, doe-eyed, who are almost... It's almost like, you know, the conservative's idea of, like, the working woman, which is that, well, really, she says she likes working, but what she actually wants to do is be at home and, like look at her husband with hard eyes and like i get that vibe from a lot of the women in those movies and i do not get that vibe with pussy galore here and i think i think it's worth noting that i don't think any of the women are damsels in this film no i think jill masterson you know did her calculus wrong but she didn't need to be rescued yeah no there's nothing like honey rider getting tied up to be drowned by the high tide or eaten by crabs no or tanya in the last one yeah i like the sets a lot in this film Ken Adam is my idol. And again, like we're just going forward with more iconic Ken Adam sets for this film. Mm-hmm. I've always been in love with Goldfinger's Rumpus Room. It's a great living room. Yeah, I just, I want to live there. But also, as in reading up earlier, I was reminded the Fort Knox vault is a great set. And it's more utilitarian than most Ken Adams sets like there aren't any slanted angles or anything. No, not it's quite not so stylized, stylized in that way. But it it is also very heightened because Ken Adams like he visited various Bank of England vaults and he came out being like that's boring. I need to make something that's actually fun to look at. And he he came up with the idea of putting the the gold behind bars like a prison. And I I think that's a great set, but 
My 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 favorite is the Rumpus Room. I don't know if anyone yeah. else has set thoughts. It's a great set, especially because it has. I love the moving pieces in that set as well, like the the yeah. bottle that comes up from the floor. So extra. This is like we're really starting to see like the monologuing villain trope yeah. being shaped. Uh-huh. Not that Bond is the one to originate that. It's just carrying on the legacy, and it will go on to influence more monologuing villains. Like Syndrome. Goldfinger is prepared. He he goes into this whole performance about this plan to people he is just going to kill in about five minutes. And he knows this. He really wants somebody to hear the plan. It's his you got me monologuing moment. It is, Exactly. It really is. I also just love... And we will put in the audio here. It must be heard. When Goldfinger's like, in every other field of art and science, people have made (laughs) big strides except crime! No progression in crime! Man has climbed Mount Everest, achieved miracles in every field of human endeavor, except crime! We need more innovative advancements. It's a great scene. My, My other favorite part about that scene is just all the very, like, um... The collected the mafia. New York like exclamation <laughs> hey! from the mafia members. Hey, what's going on? What are you trying to pull, Goldfinger? Hey, I can't do the voice, but it's really funny. Like it's... all I could think of when I looked away was like I just imagined like Rizzo and his whole family like on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> it was so like this is what they say, right? Like, they would just say this all the time. It's everything except I'm walking here. It's it's great. I don't think there's much more to say on the sets because we diverged so magnificently. So let's round it up with the music and songs and, like, the opening titles. <sighs> music! So, fun fact. Harry Saltzman, one of the producers of the film with Cubby Broccoli, hated the song Goldfinger. Like, what? he he described it as... Let me find the exact quote that I wrote down, because it is worth airing how bloody wrong he was. He called John Barry, the songwriter and composer of this film, to call the title song the worst song I've ever heard in my goddamn life. Oh my god! And he only allowed it to stay in the film because they were really running short on time. Okay, I love Goldfinger. A little bit of background to the song. The music was written by John Barry. It's the first time that he wrote the title song. The first person to actually hear the full song on his piano was Michael Caine, who was living with John Barry at the time. The lyrics for the song Goldfinger were were written by Leslie Brickus and Anthony Newley, a songwriting team who, I'm pretty sure it's both of them, definitely Leslie Brickus, went on to write the songs for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Nice. I love those songs, so... No complaints. Shirley Bassey had to take off her bra to finish the last note in the song. I remember that. I remember reading that she likes to say she liked to say that in interviews. I mean, apparently it's true. It's backed up in the book. I have something along the lines of suddenly this bra appears over the top of the recording booth, and she manages to complete the note. So I was reading that when they had her record it, they played the opening titles so that she could sync the notes and how long she held things with okay. uh, what was on screen, which is why that note at the end goes on so long. It's longer than she expected, so she yeah. just had, had to keep holding it. Heal us, 
that makes sense, and that goes with how film scores are generally, like even the orchestra, orchestra parts are recorded. I mean, it's a great song. It's not my favorite Bond title song, but like it is kind of in the grand scheme of things, in like everyone's opinion, if there is objectivity, it is the Bond title song. Mm-hmm. I really like this song. It's definitely in my top five. It's like a song that I like to listen to regardless. I think Shirley Bassey is wonderful on mm. it. There's also, there's a great performance of Janelle Monet performing this at the White House for uh, the president at the time, Barack Obama, and, and his wife, Michelle Obama. It's, it's great. And she talks a little bit about Shirley Bassey at the beginning of that performance. We will include a link to that in the show notes. Definitely check it out. I think the song is interesting because it's not about Bond. Like... You can't just say that all of the Bond songs are about Bond, but, like, lots of them are. Many of them are. Lots of them are about being a spy. (laughs) Lots of them are about the dangers of, like, being a spy or falling for a spy or whatever. And this one's just, like, Goldfinger gets his own song. It is just about Goldfinger. And it's, it's just from the perspective of... I kind of read it as like a woman warning another woman to be careful. Oh yeah, like which I think is just kind of interesting. Yeah, it's it's funny because it's influential enough that like when The Simpsons gets a Bond style villain, Hank Scorpio, he gets his own title song at the end of the episode. He'll sting you with his dreams of power and wealth. Beware of which is in the girl finger tradition. <laughs> is that the one I've seen? Yes. It's the episode called You Only Move Twice with James Bond. Yes. It's a good episode. I like that episode. It's also very on point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and as for the rest of the score, I really like it. I think it's John Barry coming into his own. He's using the song as motif material. He's not overusing the James Bond theme every single scene. Mm-hmm. It Yeah, it's significantly less than it is in From Russia With Love, where, like, From Russia With Love has this problem where they're just like, we have no other music, man, so they just put, they put the Bond theme over him doing really mundane things, like <laughs> unpacking his suitcase, and it's really and it's hilarious. Just real, and, like, it would be fine if it wasn't so bloody loud all the time. Yeah, but here it's not, and we, we also use the Goldfinger melody like yeah. in different ways throughout here as well like to actually represent goldfinger and his activities so it's interesting we have some variety yeah and i just think it's a it's great i just think it's really compelling i like it i think it's a great song and i think the titles are good too yeah a lot more interesting than from russia with love which is the same thing but on a woman who is belly dancing and i just think it's a little bit more boring yeah so this is the same guy who did the titles for from russia with love after maurice binder who did the titles for dr no and would do most of the rest of the titles but here we have the other guy whose name i can't remember right now but yeah i think this is a better title sequence than from russia with love I think there are some fun gags. I, I like the moment where the car's revolving license plate is projected over the model's mouth. That's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting. It's certainly like, often songs will begin with the Bond theme and then it melts into the song. And to be fair, this one doesn't. Bum, bum. But it does match it very well. Yeah. It sounds very... It sounds so similar that I forgot. <laughs> and in fact, like... Those two notes are so iconic that they are given an homage 
and reused for the opening two notes of License to Kill mm. quite a while later. I think that's all the individual things for the film that we can talk about. We get to the meaty stuff, the, the wrap-up stuff, let's say, of what we think is like me, Bond veteran, Sarah on her second third viewing, and Paige as complete newbie. I think Paige should go first, since this is her first Bond film, and she's the guest. Okay. I like it. It's a good film. I have no other James Bond movies to compare it to at the moment. The way that I am currently feeling about it is how I felt when I finally sat down to watch the original Star Wars series, (laughs) where, like, the James Bond franchise is built up as this huge thing that has a whole fan base with it and people take it so seriously and it's a funny little spy movie essentially like yeah yeah it's not so serious yeah and that's how i feel about especially the first couple of star wars movies they're funny little space movies with some fascism thrown in you know but like that's what this is it's just a fun little jaunty spy movie with some pretty locations yeah 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 and it's kind of like the cumulative existence of it happening like for 60 years and many more films is what actually gives it its cultural import right yeah speaking of continuing the movies um I have a question as a Bond newbie. So with each new Bond, is it like the same character or is it like Batman where it's a completely new set of people kind of thing? That's a a massive question, but also a very simple one. And I think the simplest way to think about it is that up to... Like, Sean Connery and Roger Moore are basically the same Bond. They share experiences to a certain degree. It helps that when... Sean Connery finished and Roger Moore took over, Roger Moore was basically the same age as Sean Connery, so it does flow. Mm -hmm. It also means that by the time Roger Moore finishes, he's way too old. So when Roger Moore finishes, there is kind of a soft reboot into Timothy Dalton, because Timothy Dalton's considerably younger. They also get a new money penny, but it's the same M and it's the same Q. Same kind of deal with Pierce Brosnan, it's another soft reboot. Judy Dench now M, new money penny, but same cue and some nods to previous experiences, but also more of a reboot. The only real complete new reboot that has happened is the Daniel Craig era. Okay. But we also keep Judy Dench as M. Okay. But like it's a different Judy Dench. In a way, but like it is all very muddy. Yeah. <laughs> but for all intents and purposes He's meant to be the same person. Yeah. And you just gotta get your head around that. <laughs> yeah, you just have to... The point of these films is not really to learn about him. Sure, yeah. Yeah. And I think they really only kind of started to do stuff like that with Daniel Craig. Yeah. Where they kind of... They delve into, like, James Bond's childhood. Cracked has this, you know, in in the way that they do, they have a very sarcastic video about, like, how James Bond is, like, it's just a title and he's just you know, he's being replaced and they all just kind of deal with this. And it's like, it's not that complicated. They just want you to go into each one thinking that it's the same character. Okay. There are legitimate theories of like, James Bond is as much a title as 007. Mm-hmm. Like some people, yeah. some people watch the films believing that. And I don't think that's necessarily an issue. No. I firmly sit in the position of like, it's complicated and it's all of these things at once. Like it is at the same time, the same James Bond through at least Pierce Brosnan, but it's also different. 
my personal belief is that James Bond is definitely the same person until the end of the Roger Moore films. And that's the only thing I'm willing to commit to. I I agree, because, like, I honestly see it, I mark it more by Moneypenny. Yeah. Because isn't Moneypenny, like, not in, is she in the Timothy Dalton No, she is. Lois Maxwell finishes In A View to a Kill with Roger Moore, and then Caroline Bliss takes over as Moneypenny for just the two Timothy Dalton films. I see the Moneypenny that interacts with, you know, the Bonds that we get for her run as Moneypenny. Yeah as like the same character but with a different face and i think that's legitimate especially because caroline bliss is so much younger than lois maxwell was when she finished she is two years earlier yeah like so i think i agree with you i think money penny is a good benchmark on which to say is this new because mm-hmm. she has the same relationship with him they have the same kind of friendship and history and so it's easier to feel like those men that play James Bond are one cohesive character and then when she leaves it opens the possibilities of like being able to have like a quote-unquote new Bond even if the films don't really want you to think about it this deeply but it's a good question because it's it's tricky I think but really the ultimate answer for me is that they want you to go into it thinking that James Bond is a person and a spy and they don't want you to get thrown off by different actors you are just meant to You're meant to see them as different interpretations of the same character. Yeah. I think another way to boil it down is James Bond is the same James Bond that you saw in the last film two years earlier, except for these three instances where he's not. Mm -hmm. I think really what we... The the conclusion we come to in this brief mini-discussion is that Moneypenny is the only real character in the Bond universe. (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) I'm okay with that. So there's hope for me yet. Sarah, did we give your opinion on your second or third viewing? How has this evolved for you? It was interesting because From Russia With Love is a movie that I remembered really liking my first time watching it, and then watching it again recently, I was like, what? What happened? Was I just swayed by the fact that Tanya Romanova was so pretty? And I think it was. That, I think I was very manipulated by that. And Goldfinger was one that I think I'd taken for granted the fact that the pacing is so good in this film. Like, I think of the three so far, this is where I felt, like, actually interested the entire time, with the exception of the golf match, which there's nothing wrong with the golf match. It does establish a few interesting things. Paige, you were very bored by the golf sequence. I don't like golf. (laughs) But, like, it's important because it establishes some more, like, character behaviors between Bond and Goldfinger. It also introduces Oddjob. But it's also, like, 15 minutes where we're just sitting and watching Goldfinger cheat at golf and Bond being like, I know he's cheating at golf, but, like, (laughs) it has nothing to do with the plot. The thing in the end is that they needed a way for Bond and Goldfinger to properly meet and Ian Fleming had written the golf match and they were like, this is, we'll just do this. Yeah. I think there's some really great writing in this one, despite some missteps. I think it's worth watching, and I think it's fun. And I I enjoyed Pussy Galore a lot more than I remembered watching it the first time. Not that I didn't like her, but this time I was like, she is the star. She's fantastic. And I think the other big thing is that I didn't really know the song Goldfinger when I first watched it. And when I first watched it, I was very captivated by it because I was like, this is showy. It's big. It's dramatic. It's sexy. It's like everything that I think Bond wants to be. And so watching it again, I just got really excited during the title sequence because I like the song and I've cultivated that over the last few years. But yeah, I think it improved 
from me having watched it yeah. the first time a few years ago. I enjoyed watching it, but there were certainly some things that I noticed this time. There are still things I completely forgot about because they're ultimately not very important in the story. I forgot that Felix Leiter was in this film. It's very easy to forget that Felix Leiter is in almost any of the films. It really is. When he's in Casino Royale, it's fun, but like... Oh, another thing that's fun about this is that, like, it's nice to see Q be snarky with James Bond yeah. for the first time in this film. Like, this is really where I think... Desmond Llewellyn really sort of steps into his element as Q, mm -hmm. and they get the repartee. Yeah. Like, that moment where Q's like, this is your new car. Your old car was trash. You <laughs> cannot use that one anymore. And he's like, please bring this all back in one piece. Just great. Also, I love the exchange about the ejector seat. That's hilarious. Yeah, I love that bit where he's like, Whatever you do, don't touch it. Yeah, why not? Because you'll release this section of the roof and engage and fire the passenger ejector seat. Ejector seat? You're joking. I never joke about my work, 007. Fantastic. So yeah, I guess I liked the film more and having seen so many of them at this point, I feel more strongly that this is like a representation of some of the best things that Bond has to offer as a series and as a pop culture icon because so many of the things are here. And it's clear how influential this film was on so many other yeah. things. Here's the thing, I don't like talking in objective terms because objectivity doesn't exist. But I think if I were, I think that at least of the Connery era, this is the closest to being the objective best Connery film at the intersection of like quality of film and social stuff. Like it does some of the least offensive of the social stuff that the Connery Bond films do. Agreed. And it's also, it's pretty well written and paced. And so it meets in the middle to make a pretty good film. And I, like you, Sarah, I like it better pretty much each time. And to a degree, that is more because the others fall when I watch them, because the offensive stuff in them is worse than I remember, or worse than I was privy to at the time. Mm -hmm. But also because, like, the pacing isn't as good. And while I'm not sure if I'd necessarily say that it is my favourite Sean Connery, it's probably the best. And I'm definitely not sure if I'd say it's my favourite Bond, but it's definitely right up there. And that's not to say that it's all downhill from here, but I think this is its a nice bubble where they get pretty much everything right or less wrong than they do in other places. Mm -hmm. Now we do have the section Michaela's sublime sequence here. I'm not sure if I actually have a favourite, like, perfectly executed sequence in this. If anyone else has a favourite scene or sequence, then the floor is yours. I mean, I like the bit where Oddjob drives the mob boss that he's killed in mm. the car all the way to the junkyard, and then he just gets out of the car, and then they just have, like, just straight two minutes of a crane and a junkyard picking up this car and then crushing it into a cube, and then Oddjob just takes the cube back to Goldfinger. In a nice and blue I'm like, pickup. I love the how it's made vibes, because it is straight up just they filmed a compactor crushing this car. <laughs> That's literally all that happened. Yeah. I'm like, I respect it almost, you know, like, you know why I respect that? Because let me get back to the IMDb page. There's a reason for this. So the budget was $3 million, right? They grossed worldwide $51,163,593. Wow. It's under box office. So I'm assuming those are box office numbers. So they spent money to yeah. watch a car get crushed for two straight minutes and made so much more money back. And also, like, they... and also, like, <laughs> this was the fastest-grossing film 
at the time, like it got a Guinness World Record for fastest grossing film. It made its money back in two weeks. Yeah. People really, really liked this yeah. film. There's that, and then I think the Fort Knox battle is actually really interesting. You the know what? Yeah. It is very impressive. No, I think that is my sublime sequence. I think not even the battle, but like specifically the fight between Oddjob and Bond inside the vault. And I kind of like it because part of it is that it's John Barry and editor Peter Hunt collaborating to not score that sequence. So all it is is the sound effects of the clanging and the buzzing and stuff, and that's really effective. And, like, there's just some really fun fight stuff in that. It's not a fast fight. This one is a slow one in a big open space. And then it ends with a really big, fun kill. Yeah. Where Harold Sakata was burned. Where Sakata was burned, very unfortunately. Would we recommend it? Yes. I've been thinking about this, and I would because it's one of the most iconic Bond films, so if you're at all interested in understanding, like, what classic Bond has to offer or, like, seeing where some of these things originate, because, like, the scene with the laser is iconic. Like, it that's been spoofed so many times. Yeah. Like, I know for a fact in the back of my mind that there is an exact replica of that scene in Austin Powers. Yeah. Of course. It's not coming to mind, but I know that it has to exist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, like, what's hilarious is that something that was a big moment for me when we first watched Goldfinger was, like, I'd always known that this would happen. I didn't know specifically that it came from James Bond. And so when we watched it and it was happening and I was like, oh, my God, this is the thing that's created this cliche how is he going to get out of it like what is the answer and the answer is bond just basically being like you know what you know what you shouldn't kill me because i might know about your evil plan and then like goldfinger's like oh shit you're right i shouldn't kill you right now yeah. and i'm like what i still don't entirely understand that why. only works with a villain whose only motivation in life is money yeah because if you have a villain whose motivation is violence or death but not money, like, being the backing of that, he's going to kill him no matter what. If somebody knows his evil plan, he's just going to get rid of him. But if if some, if you've got a villain like Goldfinger whose motivation is gold and money and power, he's going to keep James Bond alive to ransom him. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. As for me, I think this is the only Bond film, at least so far, and really of the Sean Connery films, that I would absolutely recommend, like... If you're going to watch a Bond film, it's this one. Mm -hmm. I don't have another Bond film to compare it to once again, but no. that's fine. I think in the context of watching it as a, like a film retrospective, obviously what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. Yes. I just know a few people who are like not big movie people or like yeah. this would not be their kind of movie. And I'm like, for them, I probably wouldn't recommend no. it. Not because it's a bad movie, but because I just know they're going to get 10 minutes in and be like, what is even the point of this? Can we please? Yeah, no, absolutely. Else? That's fair. <laughs> and I think Sarah and I are coming from the point of like, if you are of the minds that you would perhaps enjoy this. You're interested. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think to a person who's not inclined to enjoy any of this sort of thing at all, I don't think there's any Bond film that I would recommend them. Because, no. like, Michaela is of the mind that, like, no Bond film is perfect. Sure. Yeah. There are cool things that happen, and they look great in a supercut. Yeah. But, like... There are big barriers to entry that make it difficult to, like, really, really be like, wow, this thing is amazing, like, as a standalone thing. Yeah. Like, the Art of the Score podcast, I enjoy a lot. They say 
and I agree with that like all the bombs are pretty much like all seven out of tens. Like that is kind of the genre to me of the films. They're all just... I think the fun comes from the quantity. Yeah, the fun absolutely comes from the cumulative nature of them. And the familiarity of the elements. The final thing we need to do is describing the film in a sentence or less than five words. And I need to think about this, so one of you can do it first. All right. Um, Trying to think of something pithy. If you come up with something, Paige, you can go in. Horny spy bus gold trade. (laughs) I like that. That's good. Um, let's see. Hot henchman isn't enough. Um, I have to, I have to figure out something that works. That is hot less henchmen. than five words. No, but like I want something else. Two hot henchmen. Okay, okay. Not one, but two hot henchmen. I like that. Hench people. That's six words, but it's a sentence. Hench persons. That doesn't make it less words. <laughs> anyway. Too bad. This is your podcast. You make the rules. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> I think mine is. Bond in essence, gold standard. Ooh, that's good. You win. <laughs> Thank you. Good job. I didn't All realize right. it was a competition. <laughs> it it doesn't. It's not. <laughs> okay. But Michaela won. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. But we've blown a fuse. Paige, thank you especially for joining us. I hope you had a good time. Yeah, I did. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now you've seen a James Bond film. Woo! And you will be back, just like James Bond will be back. Page will return in Avengers 2012. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. There must have been other films that did it, but the whole so-and-so will return in, to me, in my perception, is very much popularised by James Bond will return in next title film. Yeah. It does say that. And so when I see it at the end of the Marvel film, I'm like, that's for me. (laughs) Well. Again, thank you so much, Paige. We will be having you back. Anything you would like to plug before we say goodbye? My Instagram handle is pagetheprincess, not Princess Paige. No, I might actually also be Paige the Princess on Twitter by the handle. All social media handles will be in the show notes. Right. Everyone should go and follow Paige. She has very fun Instagram stories. And sometime this lifetime, I will eventually finish watching every movie Chris Evans has been in. We'll see if that just keeps going with his career. God, I hope not. I really need to set boundaries, but we'll get there when we get there. (laughs) Yeah, Paige has been doing this thing called Chris Stravaganza for a few years Four years? No, it's only been like two and a half years. (laughs) Ten? Three, maybe. I think I conceptualized it three years ago. I think that sounds right. Yeah. Sarah has been in a couple, and now Sarah and I are going to be in one coming coming out sometime. Hopefully this year. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) So Uh. you all can look forward to that. You can find me in the usual places on Twitter and Instagram again in the show notes. Sarah, same for you, I imagine. Yep. Find me on Twitter and Instagram, Sarah the Scrivener. And with that... I think that about wraps it up for Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. Floating out there somewhere in outer space. <laughs> we'll see you all in... <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> you know, Elton John has not done a Bond song. No. It's not fair. <sighs> we will be jumping to 1965 with Thunderball. And uh, it's going to be a fun time. Yeah, it's going to be a fun time. We will see you all in a couple weeks. Goodbye. Bye. And
Bond kills Goldfinger, and then the film ends with Goldfinger and Pussy Galore making out. But with not Bond in a boat. And Pussy Galore. <laughs> yeah. With both. It was Bond and Pussy Galore making out. Wait, I said, I said, no, oh my god, did I write that? Oh no. <laughs> oh no! <laughs>